Hello, and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. Israel is currently fighting Hamas and other hostile groups on its southern and northern borders. But in the modern age, every war has a new front. The battlefield, which is impossible to ignore, is where the war for hearts, minds, and information online is being fought. Here to sort out the massive amount of misinformation and disinformation about the war across the internet and social media platforms is Haaret cyber correspondent Omer Ben-Jacob. Joining Omer will be a couple who has had long experience on the online battlefield, Julie Gray and her partner, 88-year-old Holocaust survivor Gidon Lev. They have just deactivated their TikTok account, which had drawn nearly half a million followers. Julian Gidon will explain why they closed an account which so successfully fought Holocaust denial and promoted Holocaust education. They did so after coming to the conclusion that TikTok had no interest in helping them push back against the tide of anti-Semitism that has taken hold of the popular platform since October 7th. All of that coming up. Welcome to Omer Ben Jacob, Haaretz correspondent on cyber and disinformation. Omer, how you doing? Hi, hi. How are you? So, in today's age, Omer, it's not so much a question of whether disinformation and cyber is part of any kind of war. It's the extent to which it's being used and who is using it, right? So, you've been writing a lot about that in this current conflict uh, with Hamas in Gaza. You wrote that Hamas terrorists entered Israel to begin the ruthless slaughter of innocent Israelis and at the same time began a digital onslaught online. You called it a perfect storm of disinformation. Tell us about the different elements feeding the storm. So uh, just at a very, very broad level, uh, I'm going to talk today a bit more about the, what we can think of as psychological warfare or information warfare. So less less about the cyber, because de facto Hamas doesn't actually have cyber capabilities the same way Israel does. So they can't knock down, uh, you know, our power grid, for example, but we can, in theory, knock down their grid. Uh, they have some cyber capabilities vis-a-vis Iran, uh, but we're not going to talk about that today, but rather more how Hamas has used the digital arena to advance its own uh, military interests. And what's so interesting is that, like with Russia, or like with countries that uh, have uh, let's say, don't have the technological advantage. Uh, they, they actually have very s- high skills or have very good capabilities in information warfare, which is cheap uh, and just uh, kind of uh, more a strategy question. So one, at the most basic level, Hamas has been pushing out massive amounts of disinformation uh, and misinformation. So we draw the distinction between things that are objectively false and pushed out nefariously and things that are kind of wrong that are being misrepresented. So for example, a lot of people now, I think, on both sides, which is a term that I despise, are sharing uh, misinformation. So they're sharing information that may be false. They're not doing it on purpose, but they're sharing it because they believe it helps their side. So they're sharing false information for for, for good reasons, you could say. And that's opposed to disinformation. That's real fake stuff. And we've been seeing tons of fake stuff. So Hamas accounts active on Twitter uh, and Telegram. Telegram has emerged as a huge scene uh, or a huge kind of arena in this war, uh, have been pushing out fake movies. So that's actually like 
forged movies or forged uh, videos. We've seen movies taken from Ukraine. Uh, we've seen movies taken from Syria. We've seen clips taken from the West Bank, from previous conflicts, and recast as new stuff, uh, as, as new events. Um, and then these kind of get sh- shared at a massive scale. But, but more importantly, we've seen Hamas actually crack a pretty smart uh, information warfare policy. So let's, let's compare the IDF for a second to Hamas in this context. While Israel is putting out very, I would say, high-produced, high-quality materials, you know, infographics, 3Ds of Shifa Hospital, all this kind of stuff. And really working hard at it. Crazy hard. I'll yeah. just say, I don't know if people know this, but there's actually a massive, massive uh, effort going on in the background. So so uh, the IDF spokesperson unit has actually hired PR people, hired uh, advertising people to do to help them shift these materials to a professional level. And we're seeing the results of that. So, for example, the 3D graphics of uh, the Shifa Hospital that show how, how the hospital is constructed. In theory, it's a very, produc- very professional production. The problem is that when you juxtapose that to what Hamas is doing, you, you also see how problematic this is because while Israel is flooding the internet with, I would say, high-produced, high-value content, Hamas is just flooding the internet. And what's happening is that when you go on telegram groups, for example, Gaza Now, which is like the main Hamas mouthpiece, Hamas-affiliated mouthpiece on telegram, the sheer scale of materials that they're putting out is huge. When you think about how the digital space works, they're winning because highly produced graphics are not believable. Highly produced graphics looks like your country hired a PR company to do PR for you, which is literally what we what we're doing and what we've always done. So this whole idea of Hasbara that you need to do professional level kind of explanation is actually shooting us in the foot. Why? Because Hamas is just flooding the internet with raw materials that people can then check on their own. And then they check it for three days. 20% of the stuff is like BS, but it, and that's it. You know what I mean? Like they've now controlled the discourse around the hospital, around this incident for, for 48 hours because they've pushed out raw materials that in theory let people decide for themselves as opposed to this kind of well-produced, well-packaged IDF stuff. But if you're arguing the Israeli case and you're pointing to the unreliability and the fakeness of the Hamas materials in general, you get everyone in a cynical mindset of everything is fake and you hurt your own credibility as well. I agree 110%. I'll even kind of use that to segue on uh, to the, the story I'm going to be publishing later today, which is about uh, a well-known Russian influence network or a Russian influence operation called Doppelganger. It's been around for two years. And what th- what it's actually based on is Russian intelligence forging real websites. So they make a fake copy of Der Spiegel, a fake copy of Le Monde, a fake copy of Le Parisien, a fake copy of Walla, of Mako, Israeli websites, yeah? And on these faked versions of these websites, they post uh, fake stories. But the idea being is that you kind of steal the valor, steal the, the, the credibility of these outlets to push out disinformation. And um, when we were doing a big undercover investigation into disinfo last year, one of the agents or one of the people who sell this information told us, you know, to be actually, to actually do fake news, you have to build credibility. You have, first you have to build credibility and then you can abuse it and then you can manipulate. And I think what's so interesting about this conflict is disinformation notwithstanding, yeah, Russians, Hamas, Iran, all the lies notwithstanding, we're seeing tons of misinformation. So a lot of people taking, even newspapers like Haaretz, misrepresenting what it's saying, putting some, you know, devoid of context screen capture online, or even worse, writing it up in a different website and saying, Haaretz said that, completely misrepresenting what we said. And then we see the Haaretz brand being shared extensively online as part of this these kind of info wars and, and I would just suggest to people and I think this really follows up on your question about us kind of undermining the conditions of possibility forever understanding what's actually real or what's not I would recommend people on both sides stop trying to undermine the veracity of the other side so we can allow a world in which both sides have 
facts that don't fall into one narrative because if not we will actually lose our connection to reality like 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 happened in the states where you have this completely bipolar media the ecosystem in which no one can agree on anything and I think Israel wasn't fully in that space and I'm very concerned that that's happening now uh, around Israel and Palestine and what's happening here you talk about the huge operation happening now in terms of uh, Israel getting its information out on October 7th militarily Israel was caught with its pants down yep. by surprise you've written that also digitally, they were caught with their pants down by surprise. So in this crucial window, initially, when the events were unfolding on October 7th and 8th, they were way ahead of us. For sure. We actually, it, we didn't respond. There was this massive vacuum and into this vacuum stepped official Hamas mouthpieces, Iranian kind of trolls and, and the wider kind of disinformation ecosystem. Within the Israeli society, I think what's so interesting is that uh, one of Netanyahu's core kind of, one of the core tenets of Bibiism has been always an attack on mainstream media. And a lot of Israelis have shifted to Telegram, shifted to these kind of alternative media sites because Netanyahu has railed against mainstream media, right? And that also helped create this perfect storm because a lot of Israelis are on Telegram already following far-right politicians, right? All the leftists are on Telegram to buy pot, but the rest of us are there. The rest of the people are there to kind of follow, uh, you know, these, these these news channels, which have been which have emerged post-Netanyahu's war on the media. And I think that helped create a perfect storm in which we were already kind of sucked up into this unregulated space. Telegram is completely unregulated. It's very hard for Israel to pull down content because it's owned by, or it's 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 a Russian entity. Uh, and I think that, plus the fact that Elon Musk controls Twitter, and Twitter has actually just been like rolling back to like pre-Trump era where you can do anything and there's no automatic detection of like bots, uh, literally created a perfect storm. And I think to this day, what's so amazing, like with the actual war, to this day, Israel is still responding, still being led. Uh, we're still caught with our pants down and doesn't matter how many PR people will bring uh, won't solve that if we don't have like a proper information warfare policy which is where we are right now amazing to think that in his last trip to the united states netanyahu made a special trip to california to sit and meet with elon uh, yeah, musk yeah. uh the story breaking yesterday was major brands pulling all their advertising from x after elon musk has personally embraced anti-semitic conspiracy theories um how have the changes in Twitter served the purposes of Hamas in terms of the war and this uh, crisis of anti-Semitism that we see in the world? It's an amazing question. Like post-Trump's uh, election and specifically post-2018, all social media understood that if they don't start uh, regulating or at least pulling down some of the disinformation, they're going to get massively screwed at a regulatory level. And then all these mechanisms started coming into place. For example, if you open 50 accounts within 10 seconds and get them to tweet the exact same thing, then Twitter's disinformation mechanisms or, or defense mechanisms will, will find that you're doing something inorganic, unauthentic, right? Post Elon Musk as part of this kind of laissez-faire, free speech, allegedly libertarian worldview, what's happened is that they've just pulled away all the existing regulations. So we've actually now gone back to the really terrible days of like pre 2016. And, and, and the effects of that have actually been terrible because all of the, the kind of automatic filtering that used to be in place has disappeared. Now let's add to that Elon Musk's completely insane economic model for Twitter where you buy the right to be exposed. So you buy the blue checks, right? So any kind of sense of, of veracity or authenticity is not only gone technically, it's now also being financially incentivized to do the opposite. Only fake accounts 
are buying Twitter's blue check, right? Like I used to be blue checked. Now I'm not. I'm never going to pay Elon Musk for a little blue check next to my name. But all the kind of fake accounts that I follow all have blue checks, right? And I think there, uh, some study found that over like 70% of all the myths or disinformation. It's like the opposite of credibility. It's the You're opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're selling credibility. It's actually amazing. Like the blue <laughs> check. selling non-credibility. What's amazing if you actually follow economic logic, then the blue check, the price should go down over time. At some point, it will be worth like a penny, right? Because the credibility is, they're, they're actually selling its value. So the, val the value kind of decreases over time. And what's so amazing is that people have been warning about this. Like the entire world of researchers of disinformation have warned about this and they don't care. And now we're actually seeing a perfect, like this complete perfect storm of this. Twitter has been a complete mess. It's unbelievable. You only see bogus accounts. Like you can barely see Aleth. You can ba barely see good j journalists. All you're seeing is this kind of like new influencers that emerged overnight with millions of followers that are paying tons of money for followers and also for like the blue check and they're controlling the discourse. It's terrible. So is that the issue on Twitter? We are talking about the same kind of players that you were talking about, the misinformation, the Russians, the Iranians, Hamas itself. Are they out there in the anti-Israel and the uh, anti-Semitic content that we're seeing on Twitter? Yes. And I think the answer would be also and also, gam vegam, as we say in Hebrew. I think what's so interesting about what's happening now is that we do actually have this perfect storm. So all the different fronts that we know about are now coalescing together and we've reached a point which is which I think is actually scary. Cause so, so I think what's so frightening about what's happening now is that our ability to discern real people from fake people has actually disappeared. So all these like citizen journalists from Gaza, all these new kind of influencers online, like we don't know that they're even real people. Seriously, like it's very hard to know who's even real and who's not anymore. And I think at a, at a philosophical, political level, that, that's what scares me because I think also with the war itself, we have to go back to kind of like basic humanism, people, skepticism, people reading their sources. Like that's the only solution to where we are at now. And I think uh, it's not it's not a mistake that we're seeing so many bots and avatars and anonymous accounts. Like it's very hard to lie as a person. And for that reason, our ecosystem is flooded with 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 fake people. And I think that's a huge, 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 huge issue. What's your advice to us normal people just trying to get normal information? Read the sources check sources i think it's the most like it's the most generic comment but i think it's really important like if you see something you see a news report that says report colon don't read that Re find the original report look for it don't share things that you do not know where their source came from a lot of my reporting is about wikipedia the only reason the only reason wikipedia is good at fighting misinformation is because it asks people to provide a source turns out that does away with like 90 percent of stuff so of course there's still 10 percent that you know uh, this source will say that and this source will say that but if you have to provide some reference or sourcing for what you're saying if you to back up your claim it does away with massive amounts of bs massive Speaking of Wikipedia, um, you've written an article showing that it may not just be a battleground for Israel versus Hamas, mm. but also a battleground for Benjamin Netanyahu's political survival, Bibi versus the world. Tell us a little bit about that story. So that's actually a great example of how Israel doesn't have like an information warfare policy, but Netanyahu does. So uh, as Israelis will know, since the war started, Netanyahu and his kind of ecosystem or mouthpieces have been pushing out a line according to which uh, it's not his fault. Uh, he didn't know. And if if it's anyone's fault, it's, of course, the defense establishment who should have warned him. And, and, and what we're seeing on Wikipedia in Hebrew 
is this kind of very interesting process in which the question of accountability and the question of who knew what is playing out across Wikipedia articles. And there was a rash of editing on Wikipedia and Hebrew in which it seemed like Netanyahu's kind of hate cabinet or at least his kind of proxies were pushing out this line. And I think the point that is interesting to be said about that is that Wikipedia in every language is actually just uh, like a discourse or, or, or an ba- arena of battle for the different sides of, of speaking that language, right? So in English, we're seeing pro-Palestine allegedly versus allegedly pro-Israel. I, I really despise these terms and think they're not accurate. But you're seeing kind of two warring sides and each side pulls their own sources, right? So like, you know, they'll use Israeli media versus like Palestinian media. And in Hebrew, you're seeing the exact same thing, but within the divides of Israeli society. So people who are on the, say, anti-Netanyahu camp uh, are trying to flag the fact that for years Netanyahu promoted Hamas and helped keep them in power. And people on the pro-Netanyahu side are pushing out sources that say uh, Netanyahu is a victim of this kind of, you know, deep state, top brass elite that for years... And smearing military leaders. And smearing military leaders, for sure. Like all of the Wikipedia pages for all the former chiefs of the IDF, all the former chiefs of the Israeli military intelligence were all edited with claims saying that they long supported Netanyahu's policy (laughs) of helping uh, Hamas or supporting Hamas. And I think it's a very interesting nuanced thing. My last comment on that would be, let's also give it time. So one of the most interesting things about Wikipedia is that it has this long tail and kind of the edits will chill out over time. Now everyone's into it, one's editing super quickly right and you always see that when like a celebrity dies or you know the, the debate about cleopatra being like you know jewish face or not jewish face all this kind of stuff right so at, at the height of the the kind of like storm people edit tons of articles but over time it, it kind of chills out and i do trust wikipedia and i think it's a very uh in my research less my journalism i talk about it as a form of digital enlightenment so wikipedia actually employs very smart mechanisms that i think uh, the internet should embrace Omer, I'm going to leave you on while I introduce my next guest, because I believe that they might have some questions for you about the social media network that they've been dealing with. In 2020, in an effort to promote their independently published book, The True Adventures of Gidon Lev, the life story of now 88-year-old Holocaust survivor, Julie Gray, the co-author and life partner of Gidon Lev, who I have in the studio with us, she had an out-of-the-box idea, let's go on the hot new social media platform of TikTok. Quickly, their TikTok account became a phenomenon and a tool for bringing Holocaust awareness to a new generation. Gideon became a full-fledged TikTok celebrity. Their account had, at its peak, almost half a million followers. They became international celebrities, written about in Israel, around the world, invited to speak, and now they are working on a second book, all thanks to TikTok. But now, the romance between Gideon, Julie, and TikTok is officially over. Julie, why did you decide to deactivate your account yesterday? So when we first got on TikTok, it was really fun and we got a lot of followers and we got a lot of anti-Semitism immediately. But I kind of expected that, like that I could deal with. Um, I became part of a Facebook group uh, that is for Jewish TikTok creators to share with each other like what's going on. And there I found... Um, a lot of shenanigans, so to speak. I That's where I learned three years ago that people, Jews on TikTok, were already experiencing not just the anti-Semitism, because we expect that, but experiencing problems with the reporting of them. So I was reached out uh, to by Tom Devon at Hebrew University, and uh, he researches TikTok and memetics. 
and anti-Semitism. So he reached out to me, and I began to work with Tom by by helping with his research. So this, the hate that we would get on our account, I would send to Tom, and we began gathering data, just something I kind of did on the side. I thought, if we're going to get this hate, sure, I'm going to make it available to an acad- to academia so they can, they can track these memes. But meanwhile, this cache of data is really is really adding up. So I would go to TikTok and say, hey, this is not working. What's wrong with your reporting system? I feel like TikTok is lying by omission, sticking to some kind of script every time I talk to them. Um, Their response to Sasha Baron Cohen coming out and saying TikTok needs to do better to curb this anti-Semitism. And Presser, who was a uh, TikTok representative in the U.S., issued a statement that basically said, uh, I'll, I'll paraphrase. This is terrible. We really care. We're going to check it out. And uh, they've been telling me that for three years. Oh, by the way, uh, we deactivated yesterday, but about two hours later, there's a new Gidon and Julie on TikTok right now. <laughs> wow. And what's your question for Omer? What about ByteDance? ByteDance is the company that owns TikTok. The Chinese company. I, I think it's a, there, there are two really interesting takeaways from what you said. I think a lot of these companies... Um, are really good at what in the tech world is called disruption, right? So let's take a non-content-based example, something like Uber, right? So Uber is really good at showing up, cutting prices, and, and doing it, like disturbing the field. You know what they're terrible at? Being like the, the actual you know infrastructure for the entire American commuting system. So I think TikTok and social media function in a similar way. They're very good at disrupting. So when they show up on the scene, Facebook is really interesting and wild compared to Aritz or even compared to Huffington Post, right? But then 10 years later, you're like, wow, you're actually a very bad international media system. You shouldn't actually be the entire media market. And I think TikTok is the same in, in, in that they're very good at showing up on the scene you know, screwing up the YouTube model, screwing up the Facebook model. But that doesn't mean that they know how to do wide-scale content moderation or even to how to deal with hate speech. You know what they're good at? Ads, clicks, videos. And they're also very good at hiring PR people that know how to say things like, we're looking into it, and I promise that the, our, 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 our staffs are on this 24 hours a day. Well, so I guess my, my question to you is, this company is valued at $228 billion, as you know. You're right. They grew too fast. They grew too fast and they didn't see to the moderation. Um, are they acting in bad faith now by not putting some of those resources into it? That's a, that's a great question. I think it's not just that they grew too fast. It's that this entire field always grows too fast. I mean, the same thing happened with Twitter. The same thing happened with Facebook. The same thing is happening as we speak now with WhatsApp. Yeah, we're all on WhatsApp. If you use WhatsApp a lot, you know that it's completely on. It can't deal with its social role, right? Like WhatsApp is almost email today, right? You can barely search it. It's, I think it's a very good example. Like people use WhatsApp today. The same way you use Gmail, but it still functions like a like an SMS app. And I think it's the same thing. So ByteDance, in, in that sense, in one sense, they're just another technology company that overpromises and oversells its capabilities and has zero desire or ability to deal with the fallout of what it, it causes. I think the second question or the second part of that is, are they acting in bad faith? Which I think is a very interesting question. I'm not sure they're acting in bad faith. I think they actually don't care. I think a lot of these companies only care about what's happening in America, where they can be regulated, to a lesser extent what's happening in the EU. And as a proxy of that, they only care about what's happening in English. Yeah. So I think as a Chinese company, they probably don't even care about that. But like at a broader level, anything happening in Arabic, Hebrew, uh, French, 
any language that is not English is they really, really, genuinely do not care about at any level because it won't get them in trouble on the front page of the New York Times. And I think that's a huge issue here. And but they are on the New York Times right now. Yeah, you're right. No, no, that's what you're right. I think maybe to me, and this is like my old lefty position, like what we, what we, the best way to think about these technological companies, from my perspective, is just privatization. Like this is just a private firm and therefore they have no accountability. Like that's, that's all it is, right? So they control our communication. And it turns out that when a private entity can choose your communication, they're not interested in solving any real problem that doesn't affect their bottom line. And I think we should all go back to that amazing scene in 2018 where American lawmakers finally grill Mark Zuckerberg about his high-tech company, right? Facebook is a high-tech company, allegedly, right? And then they ask him, well, you know, how do you make money? And he says, we sell ads, sir. You know who else sells ads? Me and you. Our newspaper also sell ads, right? But if somehow when me and you lie, we can face libel. But when people lie on Zuckerberg's website, they don't get in trouble. And it turns out that if there's no libel laws, people will actually lie. So th that's where I'm coming from with this. Like, we have to treat these people or these bodies like media. We actually have over 100 years of media law, and I don't think it's problematic. I don't think it's censorship. It's just extending common logic or common kind of uh, norms to these technologies. And, and when we don't do that and we expect them to do it, it just gets worse over time. So at least Zuckerberg was in America and has to look at lawmakers. Now it's a Chinese company owned indirectly by another company that we'll never that these people will never really be accountable for you know what i mean like the one time the tiktok ceo came it was such a funny kind of incident in the u.s like uh, congress like it was so clear the lawmakers understand nothing about tiktok this guy completely schooled them. i saw that that was and hysterical. that went viral on and TikTok. that went viral yeah <laughs> this young smart chinese guy just yeah. like running circles around like boomer american lawmakers being like why do you lie all the What's time a hashtag? and he goes like uh, yeah. he goes yeah we're selling ads and it's the algo it's not me and it's like, yeah. yeah. So this comes to kind of, for me, kind of a philosophical question then, because I, I, I agree with you. They, they don't care. Um, this is kind of capitalism writ large. Um, but I, you know, before I made the decision about our account, right, I really had to ask myself what my obligation is or responsibility is as a Jew. Yeah. Right. And so here I am curating, presenting the story of a Holocaust survivor and Holocaust education to millions of people. That's a big responsibility on my shoulders. The hate comments, I don't like, but I can deal with that. I didn't leave TikTok because of the, the hate. Yeah. I left because the company doesn't care. And it says publicly that they do. They don't care. They're lying. And that bothers me just on a moral level. And I feel my obligation as a Jew is to stand with the Jews. And TikTok, because they don't care, there's kind of a little sign hanging on their logo. And it says, uh, if you're Jewish, enter with caution. It's like celebrity deathmatch in there. Um, and But publicly, they say something else. And so for me, it's a principle thing. I think the internet has a, a terrible way of recreating everything, all the ills and divides that society has. And I think what's so tragic and so interesting about the legacy of the Holocaust in the internet is that in theory, this was supposed to end Holocaust denial writ large. We now finally, after years of taking testimonies and documenting every Holocaust survivor we could, these archives are now available online. Anyone can plug into the, the epistemological chain of survivor, testimony, historian. It's beautiful. And you know what happened? The exact opposite. Gidon's here with us. Hi, Gidon. Hi. I'm interested in what you think about Omer's point about um, the internet 
making Holocaust denial worse when it was supposed to get rid of it. And in general, Julie's decision to leave TikTok, which again brought you so much exposure, so much opportunity to do Holocaust education. Did you feel at all like you were letting the bad guys win by making the decision to leave? That's a very good question. And there's no simple, easy answer. I, as a almost 89-year-old Holocaust survivor, got into TikTok by way of Julie. She is creative, imaginative, and with a lot of lot of koach, power, Strength, yeah. and determination. I had no idea what TikTok really was. But when I found myself in it, I started to feel it and to see it and to understand it and enjoy it. Because what I was doing is actually telling the truth. I tried throughout every TikTok that we did, and we did a hell of a lot of them, to stick to what really is true. Past, present, and future, I'm really not sure <laughs> today. And the fact that we went into it in order to perhaps make greater sales of our book that we wrote together, it turned out that from that we went right into hearing people say terrible things, nasty, horrendous, not just anti-Semitic, but coarse, terrible. And some of them I didn't even see because Julie wouldn't let me see them. They were so terrible. But I remember, and sometimes we discussed, how should we react? Somebody uh, on TikTok said, you are a liar. You are a liar. You lie. You make up stories. I said to him, you know what? I wish it was all a lie. Because had it been a lie, I would have had a father, grandfathers, grandmothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, and even a childhood. I had none of those. None of those. And now we're seeing denialism of what happened on October 7th, which didn't happen decades and decades ago. It happened a few weeks ago, and it's already being denied. Exactly, exactly. And I said, I, one of the things I said uh, uh, lately was that what took place here on October the 7th by the Hamas terrorists was so horrific, so barbaric, it brought back memories when I was six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. And the Nazis would come to a town, a village, a ghetto, pull out all the Jews from wherever they were hiding, line them up, have them dig a ditch, shoot them. Didn't have enough bullets? into the closest, closest uh, synagogue and burn them alive. These people that did this on October the 7th, I said to my son, they must have had Nazi instructors, and they did it even worse. In some ways, they were even worse. There are things that took place here that I can't even describe. It's impossible. <laughs> 
So TikTok and other forms of presentation were, for me, a place where I can express myself. And I've gone all the way, including, for example, Dubai. Imagine an Israeli Jew standing in Dubai in front of uh, ambassadors from half a dozen countries and telling them about my grandfather, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother who died in Treblinka. And there were people there, quiet, silent. And a few of the women actually with tears. And this leaving of TikTok simply is a way of expressing our disappointment that they're not making it safe and good for people like me to tell the truth. That's all we want to do. And besides that, I also feel that what's happening here today, the huge demonstrations for the Palestinians, they're valid, but they're based on mis- and disinformation completely. And it reminds me, sorry to say, of Hitler. In 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38. That's what it was. The German Jews of, of, in Germany were fantastically assimilated. Sometimes too much so, I think. In part. And Hitler made them the worst human beings on earth. Julie. When I hear the hate that was directed your way, especially after October 7th, that I think was a different form of hate than you'd experienced before and that you fought before on TikTok, and TikTok's seemingly disinterest in fighting that hate. It's so, not seeming, it's quite express. <laughs> so, um, and, and the emotions and the memories that it's bringing up for Gidon, apparently that for you was the final straw that made you decide that despite this amazing platform that brought you to Dubai and that, that brought you this huge audience um, that has helped you in so many ways, that, that's what pushed your decision to leave. It is. And I, and I want to loop back. Omer, you talked about Wikipedia and its long tail and the epistemological truth that we have now of testimonies and survivors, but it's not working. And so there's, for me, there's a, a great grief and betrayal in this because our followers for three years, millions of young people, 75% of our followers were American and they're under the age of 34. Okay. So these are the pro-Palestinian protesters we're seeing right now. Our followers for three years loved, you know, thanked us for learning. They didn't know this. They didn't know that. Those are the same people who are hating us now. You see, so my, my feeling of grief and anger is that for three years, apparently, Gidon was tokenized. They they liked this little Holocaust survivor who had a sad, sad tale. They loved that. These vegans, these fiber organic, this is what I see in their bios. It's hilarious, right? Like, I'm used to getting hate from Nazis with the, thunder, the thunderbolts and the swastikas. I can deal with Nazis any day of the week. But the people who are sending us this hate 
their bios say that they're you know organic fiber creators. Um, these are these are our followers, and so I feel that three years of work is unraveled. That nothing was actually taught to them at all. I think that's one of the the, the saddest things is that when you hear someone like you don't talking, you, you understand that the sheer like humanity of it is what you want to do. And I love that you said that inhumanity. You, no, no, the, 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 the response <laughs> in humanity, but the, the response to that and the solution is humanity and, and and showcasing humans who are intelligent and sensitive and smart and can communicate their experiences is to me the key. And I think the fact that we're seeing people kind of you know negate that and and, and I think maybe it's a good way to end the fake account for me is the story. Right. So now there's a fake you. Right. There's a fake you using your your real name to do the exact opposite. But I there's think, a real them on Instagram. Right. Maybe more than one. I don't know. Yeah, we could have, uh, I don't want to say anything anymore. I don't thank you for sharing. That was beautiful. Really. I, I, I'm, I, I'm I still just crying w- here. I want to tell. First of all, I'm very thankful that you invited us here. Oh. Really. It's 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 an honor. Well, it's an honor to have you. Gideon. Really and uh, I want to also everybody to know. I am the last person in the world who hates the Arabs and Palestinians. I'm done. Last here. person. <laughs> I think the Palestinians should have their own country, their own state next to us, but not instead of us. It was an honor to have you, Gidon and Julie and Omer. Thanks so much for coming on Haaretz Weekly. A pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, Omer Ben-Jacob, Julie Gray, and Gidon Lev. Thanks to my editor and producer, Nara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs> <laughs>